Hello, everybody, and this is The Verdict is In with Gerard Fox. And I just want to say a few things. Remember, I am a proponent that you not believe the media, a politician, or a corporation, that you start to have community-based knowledge, direct knowledge, that isn't to sell you something to get a vote or to change your mind. You need to learn for yourself. And also, I want you to stay focused on people in the inner city and helping raise their quality of life. And if you're lonely and if you're sad and if you think no one cares about you, I'm here to tell you, of course we do, I do. And we're bringing you these great guests so that you can learn because knowledge is power. Whether you're young and you're in the inner city or you're in school or you're an elder or you're a CEO, knowledge is power. And I have another great guest. Today, I have Brett Tremblay. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Gerard. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. In the South Florida legal community... For those of you in Florida, by the way, I know you've suffered through a lot. Brett is a former president of the Miami Kendall Bar Association and former vice chair of the Florida Bar 11th Circuit Grievance Committee. He also volunteers on the Florida Bar Young Lawyers Division Mentoring Program. Mentoring's great. The Dade County Bar Association Rainmakers Committee. A lot of young lawyers don't know how to develop business and annually volunteers for Miami-Dade County's Ethical Grievance Day. Brett has also been named a Super Lawyers Rising Star in Florida for the past three years. These are big accomplishments. Brett also maintains his leadership emphasis and is strongly committed to giving back, serving as a past president of the Rotary Club of Miami, past president of a BNI chapter, vice president of the Rotary Foundation of Miami, as a member of the director of the Palmetto Bay Business Association, a member of the Pinecrest Business Association, an American Ninja Warrior alum, and moderator for his EO forum. Brett may be reached at brett at trembleylaw.com. He has a number of awards and recognitions. He uh, has been on TV and on radio, and he's most recently written a book. And Brett, before we get into all the topics that we're going to go over today, maybe you can start by telling everyone who's listening what the Uh, title of your book is? Sure, I would love to. It's called The Danger Zones. I don't know if you can see it here. Books are a labor of love, Gerard, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. took about two years to get out, even though it's more like a a booklet. It's less than 100 pages. But we focus on the five main areas that get business owners in trouble and that if they focus on properly ahead of time can help keep them out of the courtroom. That's gigantic and that is huge. I know that I am running my own law firm. Uh, This is the second one that I've run since leaving big law. And every day there's really important decisions and COVID has really put them right square in front of us. And that's every other business owner who's a small business. What do most entrepreneurs get wrong about delegation? Let's start there. Non-legally speaking, most business owners don't delegate enough. So try to open a business, try to run a business, try to do everything themselves I liken it to opening up a restaurant, but you're the the chef, the sommelier, the host, the waiter, waitress, and the owner, and you're trying to serve all these people in a restaurant, and the food is obviously horrible, as is the experience, and that is largely what happens to most business owners because you don't have money, so you spend time, and you spend time doing things that you think are are helping run the business, but they're getting in the way of you actually growing your business. That was my experience early on before my law firm took off. And now we've been named to the Inc. 5000 list here in the U.S. two years in a row, which is a huge accomplishment. 
And that's what a lot of business owners run into. Well, that's that's very impressive. What are some key lessons on scaling your business on a limited marketing budget? That's a hard thing to do. Again, I think it goes back to the delegation, Gerard, and you, you already asked that question. So let's say you're answering your own phones, and you and I know this as, as having started law firms, sending your own faxes like I was doing back in 2011, doing all of the little $10 an hour tasks. Well, the only way, if you take a lawyer, for example, to make money is to do legal work, right? Unless you're criminal defense, and then it's just about getting the retainer and then, you know, trying to get a good deal for your client, is to actually do the legal work. But as the business owner, which that's what we are when we open a law firm, we do so many other things and finally get to the legal work at the end of the day when we think we're going to have time. The average solo attorney bills one hour per day. And one hour per day times their rate, that's essentially what their revenue is going to be. So not hiring people. And I know I have a limited budget to market. I have a limited budget to hire, but doing the administrative task. I'm not talking about go out and hire a $500,000 a year top attorney in the nation from day one. I'm saying hire somebody that's going to take all those tasks off your plate so you can get two to three hours of legal work done. Quite literally, you're going to double or triple your business and then have more time to hire more people. And that is how you scale. Yeah, I remember when I first went out on my own with my partner then, Jay Spillane, when you start a law business, unless you have a lot of money in the bank, you have to send your first set of bills out and then you get paid 30 days later, hopefully. But that the key for me was to generate enough business and enough revenue early by just grinding it out and focusing on what was important to get very quickly my first associate, even if she worked part-time three or four days a week. That allowed her to focus just on working, and she would do very high-quality work. She had a back issue. I was able to trade off the day off and maybe not long hours for lower pay, even though she was a very good lawyer from a big firm, and I had to be creative in that sense. And then once I got one lawyer, I realized that now we're making more money because they're billing and they're focused on billing, and you're giving them guidance and leadership, and you're going to do the important stuff, and then comes the next lawyer and so forth. It does get challenging, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, when you get to the point where you have to decide what is the point at which you stop growing or the point at which you, I mean, especially professional services, if you're manufacturing cookies or a product or a health bar, I mean, how much you grow is a product of how much you can market it and what your sales are and what regions, et cetera. But when you're in the professional services business, unless you're going to do mergers or bring other partners on, which is a whole other topic, there's a question of how much can I manage? How big should I grow? What are your thoughts on that? I respond to this inquiry by saying to each his or her own. The most important thing is to be honest with yourself. So if you're okay having one associate and one or two staff people, then I would argue you're probably not being entirely honest with yourself because at that level, if the one associate leaves, first of all, people aren't put on this planet to be long-term life associates, like just to work for you so you can have a comfortable living while they just do all the work. That's Those people come and go, for example. So I would argue that you need to, in my experience, be big enough so that the business doesn't own you. Because when the business owns you, if you're out there at bar association events and saying, oh no, I'm so happy, I don't want to grow. It's normally a limiting belief or an excuse 
because you don't know how to grow. Because if your business shuts down when you're on vacation or at your kid's graduation or soccer game and your phone's not getting answered or you're missing things because you're working all the time and you're getting burnt out, then I'm sorry, but I just, I totally disagree that you're at that level because you're totally happy there. I think it's because you're afraid of growth or maybe you tried it and you hired and it didn't work out. You basically decided it wasn't for you and that it was impossible. It's like riding a bike falling and just never doing it again. I think, and maybe you'd agree with this, some of it is trial and error where you have to get out there and fall on the off that bike. For example, for a little period of time, I thought I... I refer out a lot of work to people in corporate and trust and estates and other areas. So I thought I would try to have a fully diverse firm and I leased up an extra floor and I brought in a bunch of lawyers, but I realized I couldn't manage them and I couldn't attract, I can attract the very best talent for litigation because of what I do and my name, my reputation, my ability to supervise it, but I couldn't attract the very best talent in corporate or the other areas because they would typically go to big firms or more established practices in that area. So I had to retreat sublease some office space. I uh, did five or six years ago decide that I really, for my practice, need to have an office in Manhattan and LA. And that was a big step. And you learn that you have to learn by trial and error, the New York rental market and what's enough space and how do you get enough lawyers. And I think for a lot of business owners, and I talked to a lot of them, they got really punched in the mouth during the pandemic because you're driving an overhead that is fed by a machine and the courts, for example, in my case, or if you're like one of my clients was in the music industry and their artists were not touring, all of a sudden the revenue pipe turns off and it's never done that in your experience. Then you've got, do you let people go? Do you cut salaries? You know, you do PPP loans, of course, but how do you get through that? How do you get back up on your feet? So I just threw a bunch at you, but any thoughts on all that? The pandemic is just a whole different animal. We went through this, so many of our clients went through this, you're growing and you're taking risks and you're taking on more commercial space, which is more rent and more overhead and you're hiring. And then out of nowhere comes, you know, the pandemic. So what do you do? And it's unprecedented for us. We haven't had something like this in over a hundred years. So nobody, there was no, no playbook on how to deal with it and do the best you can get through it, regroup and hopefully get back to where we were a year ago. It's like, it's kind of like a year was wiped out. I know a lot of people that just shut down completely, went on vacation, just did a lot of fun things that they haven't done in a while. So in terms of 20 years from now, I think a lot of people are going to look back on it as kind of a mini blessing, put some things in perspective for them. But business speaking, yeah, it was, it was tough to deal with. Outside of that, It's definitely trial and error draw, like you were saying. Just because you try something once, like hiring or delegating or growing or expanding into a new line of services like you talked about or adding a product for product-based businesses, some things work out and some things don't and nobody has all the answers. So that's okay. That's business. Fail fast and fail cheap if you can and then figure out what your next move is. That is so well said. Sticking on the pandemic, I think there might be some changes in businesses. And I know, in fact, there are because I talk to enough executives. In my firm, for example, we would have anywhere from six to 10 lawyers in LA and two to four or five in New York. So it's a smaller business. But for some of my friends who have bigger firms or bigger companies, the whole issue of remote working now is on the table. And there's a concept with commercial real estate brokers called hoteling 
In fact, a couple of big companies now have apps for their companies where you reserve a fungible office. They want less office space if people are going to work from home. But I myself think that there's a lot to unpack there because some people get isolated and get depressed if they're working from home. I think there's a lot to be said for collaboration. What do you think about this whole idea of people who started working remotely during the pandemic who might do that more regularly or or entirely? Remote work is definitely not going away. There will be a number of businesses that allow employees to work remotely, and there'll be a number of employees who seek employment where they have the option. So we do something at the firm called the Culture Index, and we everyone sort of disc profiles and personality profiles, but this one really allows you to see if that person is social or not. And you see a lot of productivity from your non-social butterflies goes up because like they're the type of person, just leave them in a room. They'll knock out as much work as they can in six to eight hours and be very productive. And then they're happy and move on with their day. And other people, they have started to get depressed because their energy comes from interacting with other people, with human beings and collaborating. And so you got to find out what your people like and talk about recruiting top talent. Like we're going to continue offering people the option to work from home at least at a minimum of two days per week. Our litigation team is still coming in three days a week, or I should say has started to come in three days a week and work from home for two days a week. And we like the hybrid approach because Manhattan hoteling may be a little bit easier because really nobody has a car, right? So it's different with parking in some other cities. It's just not quite, not quite as easy to do. But if you live in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale, and you want to work at a firm in Miami, an hour and a half to two hours of commuting every day, that adds up. And I don't care who you are. I refuse to hire people that live too far away in the past for that reason. But now if you can work at home three days a week, then it's easy. It's like a you want to get out of the house two days per week. So the pandemic brought us changes that will not go away for better or worse. In LA, I'd have an hour and a half commute. And if I was coming home on a Friday night at a reasonable hour, it'd be two hours. And eventually I started to only go into the office if I wasn't in trial or in a trial workup two days a week because I realized how much time I saved by not being in the car all that time if I was just reading briefs. So what motivated you to write your book? I mean, to write a book is a pretty big deal and it takes a lot of time and you have to have a mission, an idea in your head of what you want to say to people that they can learn. What motivated you to write the book? Yeah. So Gerard, like you, I started off as a litigator and opened a litigation firm and I really enjoy the courtroom. I enjoy the battle and the mental warfare. What I was doing is waiting for somebody to get sued and then it's like, all right, you know, now, now I could potentially get a client. And that just didn't sit well with me. I, I come from a small business background. My, my grandfather opened up a jewelry store in a small town where I'm from that my father took over. My parents, when they were together, had, had some different entrepreneurial endeavors. And I used to find ways to make my own money. It's like, I don't want people to get sued. I want to help people do better business and avoid the courtroom. And so the firm morphed into a business and litigation firm because, of course, This is still the United States where, and I don't say that necessarily in a bad way because we have a lot of protections in place, but at the same time, you can get sued for almost anything. So getting the message out and and saying, we want to proactively help keep you out of the courtroom. Well, what is that and how do you do it? And we were still finding a lot of people would just wait until they're up a creek without a paddle to then call us. And it's like, if you had worked with us beforehand, we could have kept you out of the situation. Defending somebody 
that was sued for discrimination that we won. We won a trial and we were right, but they still spent almost $150,000. This is a small business owner. And they said, Brett, thank you so much, but I'm closing down my business anyway. It's not worth it. Why would I spend my life building something just for one employee to basically tear me down because that's a bad person? And I didn't even have a comeback for that. I was like, you're right. That's just a, it's such a horrible way to spend your life. Imagine 10, 15 years of your life and then you're just exposed because of, of some unscrupulous attorneys. Everybody used to know the term ambulance chaser for all the personal injury attorneys. And again, I have a lot of personal injury attorney friends. It's not personal, but the new one is the ADA lawsuits or the employment lawsuits, the wage and hour. And it's like lawsuit Larry, you know, you get these guys who barely made it through law school and now they're just going to drum up, unfortunately, bogus claims and and get paid out to settle because in federal court, it's going to cost you $75,000 before you even get anywhere. It's frustrating for me and it's frustrating for business owners. So we put together a package after analyzing the top like 50 or six reasons people, businesses get sued and we combined them into the five categories. Ah, so what are the five reasons businesses get sued? Not necessarily reasons, right? But the five categories that we broke them down into. So the first one is your corporate infrastructure. A lot of companies for some reason will just skip their operating agreement and they won't put things in writing. So the business owners themselves argue and then the business implodes. So that's... Yeah. Let me stop you right there. Yeah. Go ahead. Editorialize. I can't tell you how many litigations I get into with small businesses owned by pretty wealthy people, by the way. And this is a mistake, audience. They go to a friend, just a friend, they're having cocktails or something. Do you know somebody who can draw up my corporate agreement? And they get referred to Bob. Now, Bob takes a form he uses for every single corporation. He fills it in. He decides you're going to be a Delaware corporation. You don't even know what that means or what the significance of it is. He puts a bunch of titles on people, and he quickly says, there's three of you. We're at this meeting. You should each own a third. The problem is, or a recent case, only one guy worked. Only one guy brought in all the other business, and the other two guys went and did something else. Then the other two guys came together later and decided they wanted to sell the company he had built because they had two thirds. So that failure to pay attention to corporate structure, I think the real question, Brett, is how does a person find a really good corporate lawyer, maybe spend a little more money and really think through not just the corporation that I'm forming today, but how this will shake out and what's fair and equitable down the road so that that agreement, that operating agreement that you should have and where you're incorporated and who owns how much of the of the company has at least gives you a shot for equity down the road. How, how do you find that lawyer? That is the most common scenario for business to break up is multiple people come together and, and do a business. Like one guy, for example, comes up with the money, the other guy's going to do all the work. And then the guy with the money wants half of everything. And the other guy doing the work is doing hundred hours a week. That person should get paid separately as an employee. And then what's left over, they should split 50, 50. So when you don't write it up the right way and you don't get counseled the right way, then the scenario you just gave is so common. And you said, Bob, right? As a hypothetical, well, Bob is usually a CPA and I can't tell you how many CPAs that, that I've argued with that they shouldn't be doing incorporation documents and they shouldn't be helping launch your business because 
they're afraid of losing a client or I don't know what they think they're doing, but they give you a book, right? They just order a, a, a book and it just is blank forms and you fill in the name, which never even gets filled out by the way, but because they hand you this book, you think you have an operating agreement. There's just so many CPAs in my experience and opinion doing the unauthorized practice of law and they're well-meaning, but man, they can't, they just, they really hurt a lot of clients by doing it that way. So yeah, look, if you're starting a new business, you can get a corporate lawyer at a small boutique firm or a small firm or a young lawyer, even who's in corporate and take your time with them and spend a little money. Don't be so cheap because for example, if you don't register in the state you're doing business, you can't file a lawsuit. You have a problem there. So your lawyer has to follow through and register those forms. Once you're incorporated, you're going to pay a city tax. It's going to come your way. You have to have all the proper paperwork filed. You have to have an agent for service of process so someone doesn't chase you around your kid's birthday party. You have to decide who is what authority, and you should have minutes for your board meetings. Otherwise, people can try to pierce the corporate veil. They'll argue that you are an identical extension of the business. There's no separateness of the two of you, and that can have huge ramifications if your business goes into bankruptcy. Also, where you get incorporated could have a big impact on where a lawsuit has to be brought, where you can bring a lawsuit. So I would say pause if you're starting a business. Put a couple thousand dollars to the side to hire a good corporate lawyer. They don't have to be the most expensive, but they have to know what they're doing. And they have to take their time and you have to take your time to do it right or it'll blow up. So good point on number one. What's the second danger. Yeah. So the, the second one is I've, I've already kind of alluded to, but it's employment matters. So not having your agreements, basically just an employment agreement or employment handbooks or policies and procedures that you have people acknowledge and sign having at least some sort of HR function, like an outsourced HR resource or company that helps you through this stuff, not firing people the right way, not having severance packages little things that seem like too much work and most people again skip over but your employees you need them and you have to grow you have to delegate and you got to work hard to create the right kind of culture that can bring in the right type of people and you can all work well together but even though they're your biggest asset they will always also be your biggest headache because they're human beings and we all have our own lives to live and you just got to protect yourself yeah, I'll tell you, we have, between my two firms, between receptionists, paralegals, lawyers, accountants, bookkeepers, billing people, hired rows and rows of people, and you make a great point. Number one, you have to have an employee handbook, and it has to be updated. Usually, a labor lawyer can do that for you. You have to know your culture, and you have to know what type of lawyers will work for you and what ones won't, because it's there's all kinds of bad things that come out of a bad employment relationship. Even if even if it's not your own fault as the employer and a person comes in and they're a headache and a toxic employee, they'll go to Glassdoor and rip the living daylights out of your firm, even though there's no basis for it. You're not going to go sue them. Or they'll badmouth you or they'll try to pollute the atmosphere in the firm before they leave or they'll try to steal one of your clients. All these bad things can happen. How do you, when you're trying to hire on the incoming side, avoid those mistakes? Do you have any thoughts on that? If we have a 50% success rate when we hire, that's good. You're going to hire a lot of people that you think are going to be great. And then you're going to learn later that it was a bad hire. But a lot of it could be you. Maybe you haven't created the type of atmosphere or culture 
that keeps good people, or maybe you don't allow yourself the time to train and onboard. Maybe you haven't hired someone else to train and onboard people. There's so many mistakes that, that come along with hiring. Maybe you hire someone and the first few months are good, and then you take that person for granted and you don't check in with them every quarter and make sure that they're still happy and that they're meeting your expectations and vice versa. These are people, these are humans, these are relationships, and you have to pour your heart and soul into attracting the right talent, nurturing the right talent, and keeping the right talent. And it's it's just a never-ending process. And then it all depends, and this would apply to a couple different industries, in litigation and trial work, especially trial work, arbitrations, witnesses, long hours and days, you just have to be prepared because I saw it when I was at the big firm for all those years. Some people wake up one morning and say, this isn't just for me. I mean, I don't want to put these long hours in. I don't like this pressure. I don't want to have to meet all these deadlines. And there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, you're going to hire some people who are young enough when they come in and they're good brief writers and they're good and they go through a few trials. But there are evolutions within people where they decide, nah, not for me. And there's almost nothing you can do about that. Yeah, it, it happens. It's like the same thing we talk about, trial and error, falling off a bike. People leave. You can't take it personally. You just go on to the next one. So what's the third mistake businesses often make? It's a broader category. Sorry to, sorry to keep going there, but your contracts and lease agreements. So we talked about your internal infrastructure on the first danger zone. The third one is your external contracts, the things that you're signing, the people you're working with. Not having, again, just an attorney take a quick look at making sure that you're not getting into an agreement. Like we, we have a story one time, one of our clients didn't ask us, signed a lease in a mall, but the mall physical space said that they could relocate that client if they wanted at any time without restrictions. So after a few months, they're like, we're moving you to the other side of the mall where there was no foot traffic, put them out of business. And essentially there was nothing we could do. So you can usually survive a dispute with a third party. You have a contractual dispute, things happen, you settle, maybe you go to court. And so it's not quite as, well, it depends on the money you're dealing with. Maybe I won't rank one over the other, but getting your internal infrastructure is, is number one, but then making sure that you're not signing agreements before having a lawyer look at them is, is just as important. Yeah. And I'd also go on to add here that if you can find a mentor or a business advisor, and there's a lot of very sharp people who are kind of done with their career, but they'll, for a reasonable fee, advise you or be a mentor. Our law firm has two advisors, very sharp people. They will check you on your optimistic, running fast decision to do something like sign a lease. Is it the right time to sign a lease? How many years do you want to sign that lease for? Are you going to personally guarantee it? All of those, do you have a good market rent? You can get very easily taken advantage in signing a lease. And then secondly, you have lines of credit, you have agreements with vendors. At certain times of the year now, my office manager has to slow down and get quotes and make sure that we're getting the best price. But all those external contracts for your health insurance, for the people who are running your 401k, it helps if you have a mentor, someone you can, especially if you're talking about signing big agreements, you want to get life insurance policies for your key employees, 
there's a lot of, as you grow and mature a little bit, the problem with the CEO is you sit in a very lonely position by yourself. You know, in a small company, you don't have a board of directors. But if you have a mentor or advisor, like the EO network is great because you can sit with a group of people and talk about your business issue or Vistage or BNI, I think less so. But the idea is to get some people who can talk to you before you do these things. Well, that's wild because you're hitting on all the major points and people really, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, should get your book. It's an easy read. It's small. It's light. But if I were a business owner, I'd put it on my desk or my nightstand as my Bible. Now, what's the fourth mistake business owners often make or danger zone? The fourth danger zone is intellectual property and the depth isn't there. So in other words, your trademarks, your copyrights, and your patents. A lot of businesses skip over the trademark and then get in trademark trouble. One of the classic examples that's fun to talk about is a craft brewery company will come up with a new beer and then Anheuser-Busch will create one to look just like it and then sue first and say that the small craft brewery is infringing on their copyright. And then you've got to Honestly, they've been better about settling and not just crushing the small business owner, but you still lost rights. You've lost maybe areas of distribution. Same thing goes for any business owner. Just get a dang trademark on your name and your logo and you will prevent so much heartache. Or if, you're, if you put a song on YouTube, copyright it. Well, the more typical situation is I had a top video game company developer in Austin and they wanted a new website. So they got a website designer and the website clipped some art that they thought was free, but it wasn't. It was put there by a copyright troll. And next thing you know, they're in a lawsuit, $30,000 settlement, and I'm trying to leverage the heck out of the other side. And they were very frustrated. That's a $30,000 mistake. When you get into your website and what you can put on it and where that clip art comes from, who's designing it? Are you hiring a good website company or just a friend who might get you into trouble? There's a lot of things that you have to be careful about as a lawyer. You can market, but only in certain ways. That's another good category. What's your fifth area of danger zone? So the last one is regulatory compliance. This could be local ordinances or on a greater scale. We talk about the ADA or the TCPA, which the TCPA is the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. People don't know this, but a lot of, of marketers out there are convincing business owners to engage in text message marketing. But if you don't have permission, then you're going to get yourself sued. And it's not pretty. This is a federal lawsuit because it's a federal law. Same thing with the ADA. The ADA was designed to protect Americans with disabilities, but it has been used as a sword for attorneys to find what's called a tester and just find someone with a disability and then sue just everybody, blocks in cities and, and the amount of lawsuits, especially here in South Florida. I know LA and some other places are just out of control with all the ADA lawsuits. What does that mean? Well, you're supposed to have a handicapped parking space that's 12 feet wide. It's 11 feet and 11 inches wide. And now you're getting sued and you have to settle for you have to pay attorney's fees, which is where the settlement comes from. So it's going to cost you $30,000 to move a line over by an inch. And it's frustrating. It's unfair. And I think there should be some provisions put in place to protect business owners, like letters of warning. And I know the law has been around for a long time and, and people are grandfathered in and other people have had time and, and notice and that kind of thing. But it's frustrating. I mean, one of the things is flying a drone or just even using Google and looking at pools that don't have 
a lift to put someone in a wheelchair in a pool, automatic lawsuit. It's crazy the use of technology to, to bring lawsuits now. And it's just a really, it's a really frustrating situation for business owners. Yeah, and on that ADA point now, of course, the new lawsuits that are being brought is if your website's not ADA compliant for those people who are blind. And I had a lawyer who was on my podcast, and people can go back and listen to her, who she was fantastic. And she explained the whole ADA procedure and how she vets your website to make sure you're not going to get sued. Well, Brett, you did a great thing, and I applaud you because... I applaud anybody who opens a business. It is scary. It is to be the employee who gets a paycheck is easy, but to open up a business and finance it and take the risks and have to cover the paychecks and make the mistakes and deal with all the issues you've talked about. But very often the business owner feels that they're learning completely on their own. Your book is a great resource for somebody who's in the early stages of their business you can go back and fix your operating agreement. You can go back and make sure you're regulatory compliant. These are things that will reduce stress and make it easier for your business to survive. So can we give the audience again the name of the book and how they could get it? Absolutely. It's called The Danger Zones. And it's basically you type in The Danger Zones book on, on Amazon. It'll be the first thing that, that pops up. You'll see my name there, Brett Tremblay. I think we came out as like the number one new release earlier this year when we launched it and the idea was never to write a book to be an Amazon bestseller, but we send free copies to a lot of business owners, of course, to all our clients. And it's really more about spreading the knowledge and the mission than it is to pump up book sales, for example. In fact, I think it's listed for like $6.99 or something very low, just because we don't want any barriers to business owners opening this up like you said Gerard it's a very easy read it was written with a lot of, like anecdotally it's, it's not it's not a, a legal text by any stretch of the imagination yeah please check it out well I can't thank you enough because we're lawyers so at least when we open our own businesses we start to think about some of the issues the dozens of issues that are out there at least on some level but for the average business owner they might my mom opened her own businesses with only a high school degree and she was very successful, but ran into some issues. And there are people who have different levels of education, but they're great entrepreneurs. So everyone buy this book so you can stay away from these danger zones. Brett did a real consumer service. And this is what we do with this podcast. We give, we educate. And remember what I said, knowledge is power. There's knowledge in that book about how you can avoid some of the biggest pitfalls a person runs into when they open a business. So everyone that's listening, have a great day. Get on Amazon and buy Brett's book. You know, look, on a Saturday, just read it with some coffee and circle some things you know you're not doing, and then you have saved yourself. How many times did Brett just say on this podcast, oh, that mistake cost the client 30000 that mistake cost the client 30000 that's a lot of 30000 that you can, you know, use for a vacation instead. And Brad, I like to do this with all my guests. You're in Florida, a Miami Beach, or where are you in Florida? Yeah, Coral Gables area, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how is life there? Because I want people to start hearing from people who live in the areas as opposed to the news, which has its own version. How is life right now where you live? Thank you for this question, Drug. And you mentioned this earlier. Stop listening to the news and, and connect locally. I had some, some friends from back home contact me like, wow, I heard Miami was like a war zone. And I'm like looking outside, walking up and down the street and people are happy and normal. And I honestly don't 
know what what anyone was talking about. Everything was overreported. People are doing their part. We have a high vaccination rate here in South Florida. Some people aren't and, and living their own lives. And a lot of people are being respectful, I think, of both sides and, and people's opinions and how they feel about it. Some people still wear masks, some don't. A lot of people are out at the park and really just getting on with, with living and not letting something prevent you to spend the next 40 years locked in a hole. Like, that's no way to live. What, what's the point? No, it's not. No. Yeah, I, I travel between L.A. and New York. And if you listen to the news, you would think both of those places were war zones. War zones and that the desert's going to overtake L.A. And in New York, the crime is out of control. Well, I can tell you, I walk around the streets of New York, and sure, you have to always, and it's always been the case ever since I was a little kid. I mean, you're in a big city, of course, you have to be a little bit aware of your surroundings and be alert. And I would say maybe things could get a little safer, but I walk around the West Village all over the place, and I don't stay out till three or four in the morning. It's beautiful. The people are happy. They're living their lives. They're, there's no reason not to come here and take in a good meal. And same with Los Angeles. You go down to the beach, people are having fun. There's the six-man tournament in Manhattan Beach. Life is going on, and people are moving forward. And things aren't as bad as the news seems to make it. The news, I think, it's a boring story to say, here we are in New York City in this beautiful park where everything is just fine. Everything's just fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's not news. they, they, They can't sell that. So they have to say, but over in this corner of the park, there was an 80-year-old woman and her purse was stolen, and it is crime infested. Well, 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 you know, hey, come on. So don't listen to the media, don't listen to corporations, and don't listen to politicians. Listen to the people on my podcast, because the verdict is in. That's actual knowledge. Brett, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Gerard. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you, man. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.